Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we come as people who are in need of our daily bread. And so we pray that you would give us our daily bread, that you would nourish our souls with the bread of your word. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us. We pray, Lord, that you would use your word to accomplish your purposes in us, that you would conform us more to the image of Christ as we study and and preach your word. Give us understanding. Give us grace to not only understand, but to apply what your word says and to trust in Christ more fully. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. After spending two months in John chapter 4, two months in John chapter 5, we're finally getting to John chapter 6. I have a feeling we're going to be in this a lot longer than two months. Uh, it's It's a big chapter, but it's a very, very good chapter. But today, as we come to chapter 6, we come to one of the best-known passages in all of Scripture, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. Of course, that name is a little bit off. It's a little bit of a misnomer because it's actually 5,000 men. Um, As most scholars and commentators will be quick to point out, it's 5,000 men plus their wives, plus their children. So you might say, instead of calling it the feeding of the 5,000, you might call it the feeding of the 5,000 families, or the feeding of the 15 to 20, maybe 25,000 instead. But whatever you call it, just about everybody who has gone to church uh, for a fairly reasonable amount of time uh, has heard this story. Even people who have never been to church have heard of this story. Uh, They're somewhat familiar with it. Uh, This passage is a reminder to me that this book, that that the gospel according to John, uh, is really such such a special book, such a unique book, in the sense that, uh, that, that young Christians, people who are recently converted, can read it and understand it and be uh, in awe of it. But so can people who have read this book a thousand times. Uh, man, I've been, I, I've been familiar with this story ever since I was a kid. I remember being in Sunday school and, uh, and being taught about the feeding of the 5,000, but what I'll say is that I've, while I've read this story probably hundreds of times uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, I will say that as I've spent the last week studying it, I've actually seen things in this passage that I have never seen before in like 40 years of being familiar with this story. This book is just that deep. It can be Uh, it can be just as useful for children as it can be for somebody who's been reading the Bible their whole life, uh, even into their older age. But the astounding thing about this miracle is the number of people who were present and therefore the number of people who witnessed it. Uh, You remember that Paul, at one point uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's talking to the Corinthians about how 500 people had witnessed the risen and resurrected Christ. And, and that's an astounding number for 500 people to, to have seen the resurrected Christ. That's a lot of eyewitnesses. Imagine a court case in which you had 500 witnesses. I mean, what are you going to do with that? Well, here we have fifteen to 20,000 or maybe even 25,000 people who witnessed a miracle. And it's interesting to note uh, that there are only two miracles that all of the gospel narratives uh, record. Uh, only two miracles that you can find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first one's the obvious one, the resurrection of Christ. But the other one is this miracle right here, this miracle of the feeding of the masses. Um, we, can, we can take the fact that we know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all written uh, within about 20 years of the resurrection of Christ uh, within 20 years of this miracle. Uh, And given that, we can be sure that there were just 
thousands and thousands of people who could have denied the reality of this miracle once these gospel testimonies started circulating. And yet there isn't one person in recorded history who came forward and said, wait a minute, uh, I was there, that's not exactly what happened. So it's good for us to remember that because of the theologically liberal scholarship of the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, they, they did this thing where they tried to take God out of these supernatural passages, these passages where there are miracles. It's good for us to, to remember the fact that there were so many witnesses given what liberal textual criticism has tried to do to all of the miracles. That is, explain the miracles naturalistically by removing God, by removing the divine element and trying to figure out how you could possibly explain it scientifically or naturalistically. And so in almost every case, every time they, they do this, every time they try to take God out of the story, what they end up doing is making it a story about how good man is. That's really what it comes down to. Every time they do it, 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 it ends with, a, with some kind of moral or ethical uh, principle that we should be applying to our lives. And so in the case of this miracle, in the case of this miracle, since they can't believe that Jesus would really feed thousands and thousands of people with so little food, the most common explanation is that uh, what they'll say is that this little boy, uh, he started to share his lunch when everybody was hungry, and so everybody else saw him doing this, and they decided it would be a good idea for them to share the food that they had too. And so before you know it, you have this kumbaya moment where everybody is just coming together and sharing all their food, and it. The miracle is how good people are. And so the point, the application, I guess, is make sure you're, you're feeding the poor. Make sure you give food to your local food bank. Now, that's not a bad thing, but that's not the point of this story. That's not the point of this passage at all. When you take God out of the picture, the only thing that can happen is for it to become man-focused. And when it becomes man-focused, you can be sure it's wrong. The fact is, you can't take God out of this passage. You can't explain it naturalistically. There were more eyewitnesses to this miracle than there were to any other miracle that Jesus did. And by a long shot, maybe the closest one would be the feeding of the 4,000, which took place in a completely different context. That would have come close, but no miracle had as many eyewitnesses as the feeding of the 5,000. And so we can't just write it off. We certainly can't write God out of the story. Now John's book, as we, as we consider it in retrospect, has been very well organized. Uh, you've probably noticed as we've been going through it. Chapter 1 stands as kind of a, a, an introduction. But starting in chapter 2, we've seen that John's format, uh, the, the way that he writes, is to tell us something happened and then to spend the rest of the chapter explaining what that thing is. So in chapter 2, we saw Jesus turn water into wine. Uh, you might call that a transformative miracle, but then, Jesus, or then John spends the rest of chapter 2 uh, explaining and kind of illustrating the message of that miracle. In chapter 3, Jesus has his conversation with Nicodemus, and then he spends the rest of that chapter illustrating and explaining the message of that conversation. Chapter 4, same thing with the woman at the well. Chapter 5, again, same thing with the crippled man who is healed. It starts with this significant event, and then the rest of the chapter follows in explaining it. Uh, chapter 6 is going to be the same thing. What we've seen is that the miracles of Jesus all have a message. The miracles of Jesus don't just stand alone. He didn't just do the miracles as an end in and of themselves. No, they have a message that they were designed to illustrate. So what sets this one apart, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, is that it's the first one that John tells us about in which Jesus creates something out of nothing. Jesus is going to take two small fish and five small loaves of barley bread and feed somewhere in the neighborhood of 20, 25,000 people. And science, when you give that to science, what are they going to say? They're going to say, that's impossible. But the Bible says with God, all things are possible. The fact that this incredible miracle of creation ex nihilo takes place in front of 
thousands and thousands of witnesses is a rock-solid testimony, not only to the compassion of Jesus, but also to the fact that he is God in human flesh. Remember John's purpose in writing this book. If you go to the end of the 20th chapter, John tells us why he writes all of this. He says, quote, These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So everything that John records, including this miracle that we're going to be looking at today, is designed to point us to believing in Jesus, believing that he is who he says he is, the second person of the Godhead, the only unique Son of God. So the chapter that we're starting is a long one. In fact, it's 71 verses long. So buckle your seatbelts because this one is absolutely overflowing. It is loaded with theological, doctrinal truth and application. In terms of understanding salvation, this is probably one of the richest chapters in all of the Bible. It continues to persuade us and to, to, uh, to influence us to receive Jesus by faith and to find eternal life in him. But it also shows us the compassion of God. So the point of this passage is just, it's very simple. It's that Jesus is able and sufficient to provide salvation for all who come to him. Jesus is able and sufficient to provide salvation to all who come to him. So the chapter starts out very plainly. John sets the context for us, writing in verses 1 and 2. He says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So, it starts off by John telling us that this is taking place after these things. So when we read that, what do we need to do? Uh, we need to think about the context that the previous chapter set for us. So it refers to the defense that Jesus made before the Jewish leaders in the previous chapter, in chapter 5. It ended, chapter 5 ended with Jesus showing the scribes and the Pharisees that they're condemned by Moses the man they loved so much, the man they respected and revered so much, because while they had all this love and respect and reverence for Moses, they rejected his testimony because Moses testified of Christ. So the fact that the Jewish leaders loved Moses and yet rejected his testimony of Christ rendered the scribes and Pharisees hypocritical and condemned by Moses. That's how chapter 5 ended, which is a very important thing to remember as we come into this chapter. Now, the last time John said anything about the time of year was back at the beginning of John 5, when he said there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. That was in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, we, we don't know exactly uh, which feast that was, uh, if it was the Feast of Tabernacles, as most people uh, conclude, uh, as most scholars believe it to be, then this would have been about five or six months later. So some time has passed here, but uh, not a whole lot, but at least a few months have passed. And as we read about these people who are following him, we should think back to how chapter 2 ended. As Jesus was performing all these signs and wonders in front of people, and they were being entertained by him, but they were not receiving him in a manner that he was worthy of. And so, because they didn't receive him, he didn't receive them. Now, if we look at, at hints in, in Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke, it, this would have taken place after Jesus con, uh, concluded his public ministry in the region of Galilee. Jesus goes to the other side of Galilee, uh, marking a turning point in his ministry. It seems that this would take place after John the Baptist was beheaded. 
and after several hostile encounters with the scribes and Pharisees. So during this time, Jesus has been telling parables, uh, concealing the truth from the religious leaders. Uh, and, and so this is after that. And so Jesus, uh, at this point, withdrew from Galilee with his disciples. But then here's this crowd. Maybe it's the same crowd that we saw back in chapter 2. We don't know. All we know is it's a large crowd that follows him. And John adds that the reason that they followed him, again, this is very similar to the end of chapter 2, the reason they followed him was because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So John wants to make sure that we're aware of the fact, he wants to make sure that we understand that these are not people who believed in Jesus because they heard and believed the testimony that he gave in just the previous chapter where he claimed to be one with God the Father. That's not why they're following him. And so what John's trying to tell us here is that generally speaking, their motivation for following him was pretty shallow. Their, their motivation for following him, to say the very least, was misguided, maybe even a little bit selfish, self-serving. And so who are these people and where did they come from? Uh, what we'll see here in just a few verses is that these are pilgrims who are probably journeying to Jerusalem for the Passover. And that's really interesting because between chapters 6 and 8, Jesus makes three statements, including two of his I am statements, all which point back to the Exodus, the Passover, which that's where you find the Passover is back in the Exodus. So in John chapter 6 verse 35, Jesus will say, I am the bread of life. What's he referring to? What's he making an allusion to there? The manna. In the wilderness, it's, it's, it's showing us that the manna that God gave the Israelites in the wilderness was what we would call a typology. It, it was a foreshadowing of Christ. Uh, in John seven thirty seven, Jesus will allude once again to the Exodus, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's referring to the way that God provided uh, water to the Israelites from a rock of all places. And then in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus will say, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's an allusion to the, the, the flame, the, the tower of fire that led them through the wilderness. It was during a ceremony that commemorated that pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness during the Exodus. So it's interesting to note that all of these people are coming to celebrate the Passover, and suddenly the book of Exodus starts working as the theological framework that John is using for the text. What we're supposed to see in all of this is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things. Those things were all just shadows and types that all pointed to Christ. But we'll also see the tragedy of all this through the rest of this chapter and beyond this passage, which is that these people who are coming after Jesus love the miracles, but they hate and they reject the miracle worker. They love the gifts, but they don't love God. And you might be wondering, why would John be recording an event that has so many allusions to the Exodus? Uh, number one, because it happened. Because it really happened. And, and that was God's intent with this event, that it, would, that it would be a parallel to the Exodus and show that Christ is the fulfillment. But secondly, uh, remember that the previous chapter ended with Jesus showing the scribes and Pharisees that they were condemned by Moses, whom they so greatly loved, right? So the reason that this event is recorded here is because it really happened, but the placement of it shows us that Jesus is greater than even the greatest and the most respected and the most revered of men, including Moses. So John continues recalling what had happened. We'll continue looking at verses 3 to 7. We read, then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? And 
This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. So Jesus retreats to a mountaintop. Why do you think John might have included this detail in a passage that is so similar to the Exodus? Is it possible that this is supposed to be yet another element uh, that parallels the Exodus? Where did Moses go Uh, to get away from the people? When he got away from the people, he went up on Mount Sinai. So it's possible that this is supposed to be seen as yet another parallel of sorts to the Exodus. It's also possible, if not likely, that Jesus had retreated to this location, A, because of the hostility of the scribes and Pharisees, but also to avoid drawing too much attention to himself after King Herod murdered uh, John the Baptist by beheading him. After all, Jesus' hour had not come yet. Whatever the case, his withdrawal to the mountain doesn't escape the notice of all of these massive numbers of people. And again, these are people who are in the region to celebrate the Passover. Where are they coming from? Here's the beautiful thing. They're coming from the nations. They're coming from the nations. The Passover feast was designed to commemorate the time that God used Moses to deliver the Israelites from bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. Remember that uh, that was even a picture of salvation, of, of the way that God frees his people, even to this day, from bondage to sin. And in Moses' case, God showed his power through Moses by sending plagues and locusts and hail and uh, killing the, the cattle of the Egyptian. But the ultimate warning uh, as, as Moses was instructed by God to plead that Pharaoh let God's people go, the ultimate warning was when uh, God warned that he would kill all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And to avoid this judgment against Egypt, the Israelites were instructed to take a one-year-old male sheep or goat without blemish, to kill it, to feast on it, but to use its blood to spread over their doorposts. And so any homes that followed these instructions were spared by God's horrible wrath. The, the, the angel of the Lord would see the blood and would pass over that home. So the Israelites were instructed in chapter 12, verse 11 of Exodus, Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Why is that included in there? The message of that, make sure your loins are girded. Make sure you've got your staff in hand. He's telling them, be ready. Be ready to go. These, are, these people in this context, in, the, in John's narrative here, who are following after Jesus may not realize it, but they are about to celebrate the true Passover with the true Lamb of God, whose shed blood rescues us from God's wrath, causing it to pass over. Now, if this was me, if, if I was in Jesus' shoes, and I'm, I'm very thankful that I am not, uh, if it was me, though, looking out at all these people following behind while I'm trying to get some rest, while I'm trying to get away from the people, I might feel a little bit frustrated at the fact that so many people are following after me, especially if I'm, if I'm here to escape being noticed. Well, so much for that idea. I I might feel like my my privacy has kind of been invaded a little bit. And yet, that is not the attitude that Jesus has here. What Mark tells us in his account of this event is that Jesus felt compassion as he looked at the people. He felt compassion. As he and the disciples look and, and see the people coming up the mountain, Jesus sees it as an opportunity to teach, to teach the disciples. And so he turns to Philip and he asks Philip, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? 
Now, that's a really interesting question. It's an interesting way to teach the disciples. Uh, in, in other gospel accounts, we learn that the disciples said to Jesus, send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy some, themselves something to eat. Uh, Mark continues telling us, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? So John wants to make sure that we understand that Jesus was testing the disciples. He he never, he's like a good attorney in the sense that he will never ask a question that he doesn't already know the answer to. And the reason that he tests the disciples isn't to belittle them. It's not to put them to shame, but it's for the sake of showing them something, showing them an area that they might be lacking in, or at least in need of some awareness of. In this case, what we see with Philip's response is that Philip is just clueless. He points out that even 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to buy bread for everyone. Uh, That wouldn't even be enough for everyone to just have a little bit, is what he says. So that tells us how many people are there. Uh, 200 denarii would have been about eight months' wages. Uh, That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money to invest into one event. Uh, Can you imagine having an event and realizing it might cost upwards of $50,000 to cater it? Uh, And and that was a much different culture than ours. It it might be expensive to cater to to 20,000 people in our day, but at least the food is available in our day and age. So it's not a question of availability if we want to cater to 20,000 people. It's it's a matter of logistics, and it's a matter of, uh, of financing. But that was not the case in first century Israel. It was based on availability. And some years there would have been a bad harvest. Some years there would have been a good harvest. And so feeding that many people was really an unrealistic endeavor, naturalistically speaking. So all of this to boil Philip's response down to what he was really saying. He was saying the same thing science would say when they read this. He's saying, this is impossible, Jesus. Jesus, what you are asking us to do is something we are inadequately prepared and incapable of doing. Or is it? With man, yes it is. But it's not impossible with God. There was another time that a whole bunch of people wandered through the wilderness in the Exodus. How did they survive? How did they they find enough food for everybody to eat? God provided. That's the lesson here. God is the one who provides. He provides it all. He doesn't just provide a little bit of it. He provides all of it. Jesus is confronting the disciples with their pitiful inadequacy to give the people anything apart from him. Without the manna that God provided in the wilderness, the people would all perish. And in a spiritual sense, without Jesus, the true manna from heaven All will face the consequences of spiritual death and eternity in conscious torment in hell. So one of the disciples shows us how inadequate they are to do anything to feed the people. We continue, verses 8 to 10. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now I'm not sure if Andrew was trying to be funny here or or what exactly, but but he informs us of what they have. They, They have a young lad who has two fish and five barley loaves of bread. Now, we're not talking about whales. Uh, We're not talking about enormous fish. We're not talking about a piece of bread that's as tall as the Seattle Space Needle. No, we're talking about very small portions, portions that were not enough for a man. They were enough for a young boy. But these portions weren't even enough for a man. So again, the point 
is to show how pitifully unable to meet the needs of the people the disciples really are. But here's the wonderful news. That while, yes, we are inadequate, Christ is not. Christ is not. He is sufficient. He is unlimited in his ability to provide for all who come to him. The lesson is that Jesus is able and sufficient to provide salvation for all who come to him. And that's what, that's what, he's, he's, uh, that's what he's read to show them, to, to demonstrate uh, to, for all uh, 20,000 people who are gathered on that day by feeding them. That's what he's doing. And not only feeding them, but collecting everything that's left over in a total of 12 baskets, which we'll see in just a minute. This isn't new math that we're talking about here. You know, we're not talking about, you know, some crazy new way of, of doing math and adding two fish and five barley loaves and voila, you've got 12 baskets uh, worth of leftovers and, and you're wondering, how did you do that? And your kid says, uh, I'll, I'll ask my teacher, I'm not sure. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus, who is fully man, fully God willing and able to provide abundantly, abundantly to all who come to him. Jesus wasn't limited then when it came to physical sustenance, and he's not limited now when it comes to spiritual sustenance. He's not limited by the fact that they're lacking in resources. He's not limited by the fact that they're lacking in money or anything else. And so he instructs the disciples, have everybody sit down. Notice that this itself is something of a test, isn't it? I mean, the people aren't going to be happy being told to sit down and get ready to be fed uh, if there's no food. And so Jesus is testing the obedience of the disciples. They're thinking, okay, Jesus is telling us to tell them to sit down, and we don't have anything to give them. So what are we going to do? So he's testing their willingness to trust that he will provide when, as of yet, there's nothing to show for. So there's something of a risk here for them in, in terms of their pride and not, not wanting everybody to, to be mad at them, not wanting a riot to ensue. I mean, imagine being a, a waiter in a restaurant when some hungry people come in and you take their orders and you bring the orders to the chef. 20 minutes later, you go to the chef to, to check on the status of the orders only to find out that he hasn't even started preparing the food yet. And all he says is, go ahead and tell him it'll be right out. Now, if you do that, you're, you're bound to feel like you're putting yourself into a situation where you might really make some people mad, right? Kind of a predicament. But Jesus is capable of providing. Jesus demands the complete and uncompromising trust and obedience of the disciples. Even though it sounds silly, even though there's nothing to show for yet, they have to obey. They have to trust him and obey and do what he says. Let's continue, verses 11 to 13. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. It's kind of interesting that John does point out uh, that the people who were fed were the ones who were seated. Perhaps not all sat down as instructed. We don't know. It's not difficult for us to figure out what the message here is, though. Uh, although these people who were completely um, who, who, were, who were present and, and completely uh, satisfied by what they had been given, they completely missed what the message is. They thought Jesus came to provide for and supply them with physical needs. And, and so they'll complain later when he doesn't feed them again. Now, you may have noticed that there were a total of seven elements that were uh, presented to Jesus and, and multiplied, and that there were a total of 12 baskets filled with leftovers. Now, of course, seven is the number of God's uh, 
absolute perfection. Uh, and 12 is the number of tribes in Israel. And while we recognize that this isn't just uh, an allegory uh, and, and nothing more, we recognize that these are historically accurate numbers. It's difficult to avoid at least wondering a, a little bit if there's any significance to those numbers. Commentators are kind of divided on that. I, I wouldn't say that there's anything explicitly told in the text, but if there is any kind of symbolic message to be found in these numbers, it seems that it would be that God is perfectly sufficient to provide for his covenant people. God is perfectly sufficient to provide for his covenant people. So the scene here reminds us that God has provided Christ as the bread of heaven who gives life to all who believe in him and follow him. But there's also a message for those who would serve the Lord, as we all should. We should all be in service to the Lord in one way or another. And yet, it's a message for those of us, myself included, who often feel inadequate for serving God. And that message is that you must simply trust and obey even when you are faced with your own personal inadequacies when it comes to serving the Lord. Even if you really are inadequate. And actually, you are. And it's good to be confronted with that. It's good to feel inadequate and to see how inadequate you are for serving the Lord because then he gets the glory. Because when, when you see that, when you realize that, it, it's, it's not something that, that pumps up your pride, it's something that deflates your pride. And it will teach you not to rely on yourself, and it will teach you not to rely on your own ideas. I'm just speaking from experience here. I think the number one excuse that most people have, even though they may not say it this way, the number one excuse for people not evangelizing, for people not sharing the gospel, has to do with this underlying sense of inadequacy. I don't think it's because Christians don't want to share the gospel. It's that they're weighed down by a sense that they're not adequate. Maybe they, they think, you know, I'm just not persuasive enough. And so they feel inadequate for the task. Friends, there is certainly a place for being persuasive. No doubt about that. There's certainly a place for that. It's not a bad thing to be persuasive necessarily, but, you, but, but all you need to serve the Lord is a willingness to trust and obey. Can God use somebody who is not persuasive at all to reach the lost? Can God use these disciples who are totally inadequate to feed the masses? The answer is the same. The answer is the same for each question. Of course God can use someone who isn't persuasive at all, who's totally inadequate to reach the lost and to see a sinner be converted. Because we're not the ones who persuade. We're not the ones who do the convincing or the converting. God alone is. You can put the most persuasive person in the world alone in a room with an unregenerate sinner whose heart isn't terribly hard, but keep them in that room for 20 years, and if God does not act to persuade and convert the sinner, guess what? That sinner is not going to be converted. And, and with that in mind, you can put the least persuasive Christian in the world who's simply willing to trust and obey the Lord in a room with the most hard-hearted unregenerate sinner for just two minutes. And if God acts and replaces the sinner's heart of stone with a heart of living flesh, that sinner will be converted. See, it wasn't the hands of the disciples that provided the food that was necessary for the masses. They could only give what they had received. God had to do the work. God had to be the one to put that in their hands. They didn't make the fish and loaves increase. He did. A.W. Pink notes this. He says, quote, Our duty is to seek bread at the hands of his Lord and then set it before the people. What they do with the bread is their responsibility. But remember that we cannot give out to others except what we have first received ourselves. End quote. 
all of this to say, trust and obey. Don't rely on yourself. Don't see yourself as adequate, even partially adequate. Come to realize that you are inadequate so that you will understand that God is able to provide more than sufficiently where you are inadequate. Have great confidence in God despite your inadequacies. That was the lesson with the manna in the Exodus, right? When they gathered the manna as they were instructed, we read this in Exodus sixteen eighteen. When they measured it with an armor, he who had gathered much had no excess. He who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And that gets repeated for the sake of emphasizing the sufficiency with which God provided in verse 21. It says, they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. Those who gathered a lot didn't have too much. Those who gathered little didn't have a lack. And here in John 6, we see that Jesus provides abundantly. This isn't a story that deals with feeding the hungry. It's about the spiritual sustenance that Jesus provides to all who feed on him as the bread of life. As he'll say later in this chapter, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. How do we know that this is a spiritual lesson and not a physical lesson? Because by the time 12 o'clock rolls around in here, some of you are going to be hungry, even though you're following Christ. So we know that Jesus isn't speaking physically. He's speaking spiritually. This is a spiritual lesson, not a physical one. And what we see is that Jesus provides abundantly. The lesson here is that Christ is the true lamb of the Passover. The lamb whose blood covers us so that God's wrath passes over us. Christ is greater than Moses as he leads us through the wilderness, as Jesus leads us through the wilderness of this world, of this life, providing everything that is necessary to sustain us, both physically and spiritually. This is not a lesson on physical prosperity, though. It's a lesson on spiritual prosperity. Sadly, what we're about to see is that that lesson, that simple lesson, that simple principle completely flew over the heads of the people. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now we should note that there's something that the people do not miss here. There's something that did register with them. They don't miss all of the allusions to the Exodus. In fact, they seem to have caught on to the fact that this is parallel to the Exodus, which is why they say this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Notice, they don't say this is a prophet, no, they're using the definitive article here. They say, not a prophet, but the prophet. Who is the prophet? We find that answer, uh, that answer in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses delivers a prophecy to the people, telling them, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And they're saying, this is the guy. This is the guy. Now, if Jesus had come to exercise political power, uh, to, to establish an, an earthly kingdom, uh, this was his chance right here. These people don't just want him to be a prophet, not even the prophet. They want him to be their king. But the question is, to what end? See, they don't want him to be their king before whom they bend the knee in worship and submission and obedience. They don't want him to be their king in the sense that they would submit themselves to him and have faith in him. No, they want someone who will give them earthly freedom and material prosperity. And so Jesus knows their intentions. 
He knows what's going on in their hearts. And so he withdraws from them. He's not going to be their political puppet. And he's not going to be lured away from perfect, unfailing obedience to the will of the Father. Friends, the reminder here is that it's possible for people to follow Jesus with impure motives. It's possible for people to follow Jesus with a desire for material prosperity, but not spiritual sustenance. I mean, isn't that the same thing that we see in the Exodus? Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and the people who who have seen God free them from the bondage and slavery in Egypt, they decide to exercise their, their newfound freedom by worshiping a golden calf while Moses is away. And, and as, they, as they travel through the wilderness, whatever things get kind of rough, whenever things uh, aren't going exactly as they had hoped, what do they do? They start grumbling and complaining and, and lamenting uh, the fact that they're out in the wilderness and they start wishing that they could just return to slavery and bondage in Egypt. And we face the same danger, friends. It's possible to follow Jesus, and to desire to make him your king, but only insofar as it meets your needs, your expectations, your desires, as long as it keeps you happy and comfortable. Such people, many of those people, will one day hear Jesus say to them, away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Are you willing to follow Jesus even into the wilderness are you willing him are you willing to, to follow him even if it might cost you something what if it costs you everything when you come to him what's your motivation is it worldly comfort is, is it worldly treasure see the first exodus was a call for god's people to flee from slavery and bondage even though doing so might have meant enduring hardship in the wilderness and relying entirely on God's provision to be sufficient. And life in Christ is no different. Christ is sufficient to free every sinner who comes to him, to to bless and keep them and sustain them. Luke tells us in his account of of the feeding of the 5,000, in in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, that after feeding the the 5,000, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Friends, Jesus calls us to a new exodus in which we are instructed to follow him on the difficult and treacherous journey of holiness, all for the glory of God. In the words of the famous Puritan author John Owen, quote, Faith empties the soul of its own wisdom, understanding, and sufficiency, so that it may act in the wisdom and sufficiency of Christ. End quote. Friends, do you see what Jesus is offering here? Do you see what he offers to all who will come to him? Do you want freedom from bondage to sin? Come to him in faith as those who ate the first Passover with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. In other words, come to him prepared to follow him into the greater and true exodus. Jesus has opened a way to freedom for you. But you must come to him in faith as you are, insufficiencies and all, with a willingness to trust in him to provide, a willingness to follow him wherever he may lead, and a desire to obey. And he is glorified in that. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, We do thank you for the bread that we have received today. Thank you, Lord, for the spiritual sustenance that you give us in your word. And we pray, Lord, that as we
even as we depart today, we may remember and live by the fact, knowing that Christ is sufficient for our deepest needs. We thank you for sending him to be the perfect sacrifice, knowing that we are inadequate, and yet he is not. Thank you that he walked in perfect obedience to your will in order that he would be the spotless, unblemished lamb who would take the sins of his people away, whose blood causes your wrath to pass over us. We thank you for that great sacrifice. And in the silence of our hearts, Lord, we confess to you the multitude of ways that we are inadequate the multitude of ways we fall short, the multitude of of reasons we need Christ. And we thank you that you have done the work of converting us, of replacing the stone heart with a heart of living flesh. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for Christ's sacrifice. Thank you for providing the perfect sacrifice. And thank you for making us your people. Teach us, Lord, to glorify Christ in all that we do, that he may be seen as sufficient in all things for all who come to him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.